You're listening to Future Theater Radio with Bill and Nancy Burns, right here on the Dark Matter Radio Network and PSN Radio. Hi, everybody. We are your co-hosts, Bill, that's me, and Nancy. That's me. Burns, and we are broadcasting live on Future Theater Radio from the banks of Primrose Creek in beautiful downtown Solbury Village, Pennsylvania, on PSN Radio. And the Dark Matter Digital Network, our producer, is the ever-faithful Jackal. Say hello, Jackal. Hello, Jackal. Do you realize that for this new election coming up, the one coming up in two months, there are, I think, nine in different states on the ballot now who are either asking to totally legalize pot, um, you know, have medical. And I think in the course of the celebrations that are going to happen on November 8th, 9th, when five more states become legal, I think it might wake everybody up that this isn't fair. Just my own Little. Well, I mean, look, my personal reaction is I don't think there should be a federal, um, a federal prohibition against marijuana, nor do I think it is the province of the federal government to legalize marijuana. I think no. they should just keep their hands off completely. I mean, I'm, you know, I, my attitude is about the federal government, the fewer laws, the better, quite frankly. And this is one set of laws that um, the, entire, the entire rationale for this is is fraudulent. It's had nothing to do with health, nothing to do with drugs. Well, it's hard to believe anything when you have to accept their rationale. But by the way, a, a real fascinating tidbit that Bruce is going to work or talk to us tonight about is um, his book. And if you go to the website right this moment, you'll ha- you'll see the wrong cover. I'm putting the new cover up as we speak, but it'll take a few secs. But his his book, the, the title's the same. The FBI. CIA UFO connection. And um, in this book, Bruce has mentioned that uh, there is a briefing in there for Dr. John Gibbons. Okay. Yeah. Which may be part of the reason that Hillary is pro UFO. So well, I want to hear about she, that. Uh, who, um, what's the relationship of John Gibbons to. I don't know. That's a very brief. Well, that's something piece. we should ask him tonight. Yeah. Um, the other thing um, I wondered about is do you want to tell folks, do you want to express your weird conspiracy theory that you've begun to develop based on stuff you're learning? I think it's really interesting. With respect interesting. to? Well, the one about Benghazi. Oh, oh, I've talked about that before. Not on the air. Okay, not, well, not with okay, so, okay, so my theory of Benghazi is this. Benghazi. Um, I have a lot of friends in three-letter agencies. And people who have formally worked at my age, everybody's formally worked, but um, people who formally work for these agencies. And there are email threads that bounce back and forth, not really classified stuff, but stuff that is more speculation than than fact. But one of the things that really made sense was, uh, and I kind of thought this at the time, back in 2012, when, uh, when this happened, I thought that there was something, and I still think that, that there is like this big missing piece of information about Why do you think the rationale. Be? Because, 
and I think Chris Matthews is saying the same thing. There's some, there's a, there's this giant disconnect about Benghazi. This just real huge disconnect. And the disconnect is why? What was our ambassador doing in Benghazi on 9-11? That's first of all. Why was there no provision for immediate extrication or rescue at Benghazi whatsoever? And then when it was all, when, when the smoke had cleared, and I think it was uh, Samantha Power, I think. I may be wrong. It may be Susan Rice, one of the two. But I think it was Samantha Power. When she was doing the uh, Sunday talk shows about it, why were there CIA talking points? Mm-hmm. That yeah, always bothered me. Yeah. What was the, why was the CIA providing and then revising talking points? So, yeah, uh, there's a problem with the fact that whether it was a bunch of guys reacting to a video, we know now that it wasn't. Whether it was a planned demonstration, we're not sure who was demonstrating. But whatever it was, what was the CIA doing providing the talking points for somebody working for the State Department to go on television as a spokesperson? And that really bothered me. So... It, it, it just looks to me as though kind of the secret of Benghazi, if there is one, is that the CIA's fingerprints are all over it from the very start. For example, what was our ambassador doing in Benghazi? One theory is that after the fall of Muammar Gaddafi, there were extremist elements in Libya. And they were in possession of shoulder-fired anti-aircraft missiles. And the United States, again, under the auspice of the CIA, wanted to buy these missiles back. And so it was Christie, and so it was Chris Stevens, our ambassador, who was specifically going to Medghazi, to a known place where there were terrorists, to make a deal to buy these shoulder-fired anti-aircraft missiles. Uh, back from the extremists. This is not the guns, the Fast and Furious? Or this is, is not Fast and Furious. This is different. And, and, and my theory is that that offer to sell them from the extremists, that was a setup. That was a trap to trap our ambassador and then attack the consulate at Benghazi. And by the way, Benghazi was a CIA installation. So I think what this was, was not something against Obama per se, not something against Hillary Clinton per se, although, although I think what she did as the good soldier that she is, and she is a good soldier, whether you think she's a liar or not, I don't care, but she really is a good soldier right. uh, and, and loyal. Again, I don't care whether you think she, uh, she's lying or not, but the, the point is she, uh, she was loyal and she's covering for the CIA. And, and I think that's kind of a, uh, the hidden secret. And I think the, the opposition well, we'll folks talk- know this. The Benghazi panel, folks on that panel know this. Well, they'd be briefed. And what they're trying to do is really get the secret out to show, well, you know, look, she breached her oath. So I think that's part of the secret of Benghazi, which has nothing to do with this election. It's just my theory 
about the rationale for, for what happened in Benghazi, that it was a CIA, CIA operation. The CIA was tricked. It was a trap. And now everybody's got to cover for a botched CIA operation. Possibly. Possibly. Well, um, since the FBI, then why did the FBI, why were they the ones to do the investigating if it's a CIA operation? And also... Because the CIA doesn't have investigative powers inside the United States. Okay, but tell folks what you understand to be the relationship between those two agencies. Because don't they kind of hate each other? They despise each other. Well, I mean, I mean, enough to really... Inside the federal government, agencies that really don't get along, the NSA and the CIA and the FBI and the DEA, Customs is not even in the mix because they're, I think they're part of Treasury, but that will, now they're part of ICE, I think. But um, the thing is who's that, yeah, ICE? these agencies wait, wait, don't really get along. In fact, from its history, because we did a book on this, my God, 25 years ago, The Squad. In that book, there was um, the person whose story this is, the pseudonymous Mike Milan, said, pseudonymous. said that as early as 1948, when um, uh, the bodies of American soldiers were still being returned from, uh, uh, from Vietnam – not from Vietnam, from, uh, uh, from World War II, uh, Marseille, that in the effects, they were smuggling opium into the United States. That was one of the opium routes. And the CIA knew it. And the FBI knew it. And that was this inter intragovernmental war between the CIA and the FBI. And that all started back in the back in the 1940s, right after the war. Well, um, uh, Dr. Bruce, there's also a link I, I put up that is highly disputed. OK, it's it's the link that takes you back to the things that people have said uh, whenever the name Bruce Maccabee is mentioned. It's ooh, he's CIA. And I put up a link that kind of lays out some of that for you. And Dr. Bruce has pretty consistently knocked it down. Right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, we've talked about it. In fact, we've kidded a lot about the fact that in the aviary, which was this um, uh, a manuscript that um, Jamie Chandra had. Jamie Chandra was the person who received the uh, first on a roll of film. The, well, let's um, just see. Let, Angel, have do you have any MJ twelve files of the whole Jamie Shan uh, uh, Jamie, uh, Jamie Chandra? This whole story, this does this. Old, it was how, it was old? how the MJ12 files came into being. No, no, I don't. Supposedly, what turned up in the mailbox or in some kind of Dropbox of this Hollywood producer Jamie Chanderay was film, and the film really was the initial MJ12 documents, and that's what, and this was all the way back, like easily over twenty years ago. And this is what started the whole MJ-12 documents, um, Bob Wood, Ryan Wood, Stan well, Freeman people, movement about these documents. Right. Those, had people ever heard the words MJ-12 no. before those documents? No, no, this, no, no this, uh, this came out of those documents. It was Magic 12, and mm-hmm. it was Stan who basically did the book on magic. Stan Freeman did the Correct. book on yeah. magic. And so, but, um, but in... In all this 
tranche of info, uh, this tranche of information that came out, there was a series of, uh, it was called the aviary. And people in the aviary supposedly had bird names given to them by the CIA as code names. And in that, in that document, Bruce McAbee, Dr. Bruce, was Seagull. That was his CIA handle. Well, um, okay, so the MJ-12 documents, are they from a certain branch of government service? Well, supposedly what they were, for the most part, these were briefing documents um, for President Eisenhower's coming into office in January 1953. Now, the extrinsic events that might have prompted this I mean, I've always, and this is private to me. This is not, this is not established fact. This is my theory is that yes, he might've been briefed on Roswell and Eisenhower, according to those who were members of the, uh, on the, of the crew of the USS uh, FDR, uh, during Operation Mainbrace in 1952 in, the, in uh, the North Sea, said that Eisenhower was on board and saw UFOs from the bridge, went back to, uh, and before he went back to his quarters, he basically told members of the bridge crew to relay this order. You guys forget what you saw. Just tuck it away. It never happened. And then he went back down to his quarters. So Ike would have known I could have anyway known about the Foo Fighters in World War II because he was Supreme Allied Commander. So he would have known all the stories of UFOs. And so, but in July 1952, on two successive weekends, there was this UFO incursion, this invasion of the Washington, D.C. airspace, very heavily covered in the media, by the way. This was, again, this was not something that is myth. This is something very heavily covered in the media. Uh, Frank Ficino has written a great retrospective book about it called Shoot Them Down, about orders given to our interceptors to shoot these UFOs down. And the facts that Ficino has in his book uh, are really based on fact, plus, plus, the, other issue, uh, plus the other story that uh, one of these flying saucers crashed in Braxton County, West Virginia, and that's the story of the Flatwood, uh, the Flatwoods monster. Folks should go to Frank Fashino's website um, and really buy his book because that is probably the most complete story of the 1952 incursion over Washington and the UFO crash in uh, uh, Braxton County, West Virginia. But after... All of that, after General Samford went on the air and said this whole thing was a oh, big mix-up, big, big misunderstanding. Okay, when did he go on the air? For- this was in 1952. He was on the air. And do um, we have film of this? There is film of Samford, and, and folks can find it. After that, Edward Ruppelt, who was the head of Project Blue Book, and I direct folks to Ruppelt's book about UFOs, look him up, R-U-P-P-E-L-T. And also the great Colin Bennett has um, done his own edition of um, a Ruppelt story. And, and, and folks should look at that because Ruppelt basically debunked everything General Samford said because 
Among other things, Rupert wanted to get the truth out and really tells the story of that there were no radar failures, that there were no misidentifications, that pilots knew exactly what they were seeing and they were shooting at. So he really debunks what Samford says. It's a book lost to history for the most part, except for Colin Bennett's reissue of that book uh, and is a re-editing of that book. And so that is the... Uh, that is the essence of before Eisenhower came into office in January 1953. Hmm. And so these were the briefing documents prepared for Ike to understand what was going on. And then the Eisenhower presidency, if any presidency could be called the UFO presidency, certainly given all the rumors about Eisenhower's meeting with the aliens, why that started the open skies agreement with the Soviets, why there was such a meeting in the first place. It was President Eisenhower who really was one of the pivot presidents about our dealing with UFOs. Well, um, Angel, are you still uh, a, a Trump supporter? 100%. 100%. Yeah, I've been wondering about this. Um, and since you ta- just were talking about Eisenhower, Eisenhower said, beware of the military-industrial complex, correct? Correct, yep, yep, yep. And I am wondering about the, the, the cleavage in our country between, I really do think on one side is the military-industrial complex. I think that's what Trump represents. I think that's why it is so uh, defense-heavy. Let's lay up some, you know, let's everybody retreat to their home countries. No, no talking over the wall. And, uh, you know, and then we'll shoot you. And Un- it sounds like the mi- still better than Hillary Clinton. Unfortunately, that's not the. Unfortunately, that's not the military industrial complex. You know, one of these days I'll ask. I'll Angel. tell you what it is. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what it is right now. Okay. It says nothing to do with the military industrial complex. It is national socialism. Sorry. But that's really what it is when you hear all the arguments. But I, but I want to get off this because the election will play itself out and people will vote the way people want to vote, which is the way it should be. And come November 8th, November 9th, we will have a president-elect and we will either be and happy our that re- our and, candidate and is our one realities. or not happy the other candidate is one. It's just that simple. Whoever gets the most votes. So, yeah, but you know, it's funny, the other side always blames the other side or accuses the other side of being socialist or communist when they're, you know, looking like they're going to lose. Uh, happened, you know, last uh, two elections when uh, when Obama was running, they claimed he was a socialist, and it turns out he kind of is a socialist. Uh, now, of course, now they're saying, oh, no, no, you know, Trump is a socialist, he's a communist, he's this, I he's don't that. think he's a communist, I don't think he's a socialist, I think he's I a don't think he's either. socialist. Now, I think Obama Sanders. is a socialist. Bernie Sanders was a self-declared socialist. Sanders is a socialist. Well, they do. No, Sanders called himself a socialist. He 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 ran as a socialist in Vermont. But we have a socialist country. We have a a republic with a lot of socialist leanings. We have... uh, uh, we 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 have a republic with a lot of socialists in it. Well, no, no, no. But see, don't you... I mean, Bill and I are enjoying Social Security. Isn't that a socialist concept? Well, yeah, that's why mm. Roosevelt – and, and so I, I, I just sent a, a book about – it's called The Paranormal Presidents that Joe Martin and I are doing. And in it, we, you know, uh, we talked about how in certain presidencies, certain presidencies, there was a major pivot. And, 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 and Jim Sanders and I are, 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 are doing research on a book about uh, Roosevelt's – 
presidency and, and about the fact that there were people in Roosevelt's orbit who uh, uh, Sanders calls them, Sanders wrote the downing of TWA Flight 800, um, um, who, who, who refers to the people around Roosevelt in uh, 1942-43 as basically, he calls them the 12 disciples. And these were the people who were really promoting the United States to side with Mao Zedong as opposed to Chiang Kai-shek. In other words, they were pro-communist. And so Sanders and I are debating this now. What would have been the rationale for Roosevelt to, and I think it's a much bigger issue, what would have been the rationale, and certainly too heavy for this program, but what would have been the, uh, uh, the rationale, the political rationale for Franklin Delano Roosevelt to have supported a, a communist government? On the one hand, I mean, I... Uh, my, what I told Sanders was uh, that on the one hand, we basically, um, we knew that the moment Adolf Hitler invaded the Soviet Union and broke the non-aggression pact, the moment he launched that invasion called Operation Barbarossa, basically what our Defense Department had a high confidence in was that was the turning point of the war. Churchill said that was the turning point to the war in 1942. Um, we believe that was a turning point to the war as well. And, and, and both Churchill and Roosevelt allowed the Soviets, allowed the uh, Russian civilians to take such enormous punishment. I mean, they were cannibalizing each other in, 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 in certain Russian cities as the, as the uh, Germans advanced. But as both Roosevelt and Churchill and the defense departments, the war departments in both countries predicted, the Germans simply ran out of steam that by the time Stalin made his stand at Moscow and repel the German advance, there was nothing left, and they had to retreat in the winter. And that was basically, except for the mop-up in 43 and 44, um, that was the end of, of, of German resistance for the most part um, in World War II. They knew at that point, in fact, here's how they knew. Um, I had a really good friend, whose book I wrote, by the way, who's nobody wanted to publish, um, who was at Auschwitz, he was in the Canada barracks in, in Auschwitz in 1943. And what he, and this was an eyewitness. This is not speculation. This is an eyewitness, uh, um, a person who was a transport commando. He was one of the Jews who had, was working for Josef Mengele, said that the crematoria at Auschwitz were shut down for the, for, for the camp prisoners and they were being used to burn the bodies of German soldiers because the, the Reich, the Wehrmacht, didn't want the German civilians, the German population, to experience the influx of German war dead from the Russian front. That was how bad it was for them after the Operation Barbarossa collapsed and the Germans had to retreat. So... 
But it was it took a tremendous toll on the Soviet Union. Well, I'm going to be curious to see how you weave this in with Bruce. I'm because, not because no, it has will. nothing to do with Bruce Amakery. Yes. Um, but the well, point our is, history our history really does inform us if we learn it now. Um, do you, Angel, uh, believe in Snopes? Do you ever go there and trust oh, uh, no, I don't trust much of what they post on Snopes. I know that they've uh, arrested uh, the head of Snopes recently for fraud. So that tells you everything. Uh, I guess that story is not on Snopes. <laughs> yeah, um, no, that's not. No. What kind of fraud was he arrested for? Uh, frauding uh, information on his website. But that is that. Well, we need to find really? out. Well, we need to yeah. find out more about that. What's because... the criminal? What's the crime? But I mean, what would be the criminal? Well, I don't know all the charges. I just saw that? a report. I just saw a report on it that he was arrested for fraudulent information. I mean, it, I'd, I'd have to look I, into it further. I but. can paste information on if I had a website. I could paste information on it that you know that basically said that um, you know that flying searches have already landed and that's what's taking over the country. That would be totally fraudulent. Actually, it wouldn't be, but that would be totally fraudulent, and um, I couldn't get arrested for it. So I'm just wondering what kind of fraud that was. We must find out because, you know, I've been spending a lot of time. Um, when you go on to a brand new website you've never been to before, you might believe even the stuff in the advertisements. You don't even know their advertisements. I went following, for example, like what? When I was on one site, it said that Robert Redford and Meryl Streep um, have been deeply in love with each other since African... Uh, the, out of Africa. Out of Africa. Oh, wait, hold on, hold on. Uh, the report of Barbara and David Mickelson, the founders of Snopes, were arrested on fraud and corruption charges have gone viral. But the truth is, Barbara and David Mickelson have not been arrested on fraud or corruption charges. It was a fake news website called People's Cre uh, Cube uh, wow. that started the rumor and the story that appeared under the headline, Snopes.com uh, CEOs arrested on charges of fraud and corruption. Wow. So never mind, never go. mind. Wow. There you go. And yeah, so that, that, that to kind be, of rang uh, very hollow to me, Angel, to uh, be when a, you said that, no, because I, I couldn't figure I, out why. I had heard that Snopes was purchased by somebody. I want to say AP or somebody. Maybe it is AP. Um, but but a news consumer nowadays has to know how to Google. Yeah, I really do. I, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, that's one of the problems of the Internet. It is faux news. No news, faux news. But it's also 1030 at the bottom of the, of the hour. So it is now time. Wait, before we move on, I want to just double check here with the guys. Uh, Chris and Jesse, I believe, have, following our show, stay tuned. Uh, let's see here. Harry, I'm looking for it again. I'm lo losing it, Harry. Drew, I think it's Drew. Nancy. Drew, Harry Drew. Harry Drew, r immediately following our show. And then on Skywatchers Radio, who is the guest going to be? Oh, well, that's tomorrow, Nancy. That's not right. tonight. But. Right. Well, we might as well let people know what you're going to want tomorrow. I don't think we've actually uh, booked anybody for tomorrow, do we? Oh, yeah, that's right. We have Jeff Willis on. No, no, that's oh. not. That's, is that this one? No, that's next month. I'm sorry. No, we don't have anybody actually booked tomorrow. Okay, well, but we'll come up with something good. Okay, speaking of Jeff Willis and speaking of UFO in general, there is a bit of a scam going on right now under Bill's name that I, we might as well just announce. Yes. Yes, yeah, so I have to take that, that site down. Yeah, uh, yep. I mean, yeah, I lost the password, but I'll find it. And um, yeah, somebody is putting up stuff on that website. Uh, disregard anything you see on that website. But go but good old friends have been calling all week. I know. Thank you, friends. Yes. Thank you, Angel. Okay, yeah, I've been getting, I've been getting reports. Funny, I got a bunch of reports on that. And I was like, "What? Really? Bill's yeah, got right. hacked? No way!" Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's the bottom of the hour. We're going to come back with our guest, Bruce McAbee. Uh, so we are Bill and Nancy Burns on Future Theater on the PSN Radio with the Dark Matter Digital Network. Back with our guest, Bruce McAbee, after these very, very... Professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions, providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology, preventative maintenance and networking support, hardware and custom built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call Key Information Solutions now. 954-973-3374 That's 954-973-3374 Or visit keyinformation.com Four thousand seven hundred thirty-four UFO sightings in 2007 854 abductions by aliens or unknown species reported by American and British citizens. And hundreds more unreported in 2007. Suppressed information about collisions with passenger aircraft and UFOs that has been kept from the public knowledge for years. And only one trusted source of information from some of the top UFO researchers in the world. Exclusive information that cannot be found anywhere else on the planet. Trusted, connected, accurate. The UFOStore.com. Expand your personal library with fast shipping and instant downloadable information from the largest selection of UFO products on the internet by going to theufostore.com or call on the 24-hour, 7-day-a-week order line at 541-523-2630. The truth is out there, and theufostore.com has it. in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com 
have with our guest, Dr. Bruce McAbee, and we are really excited. Uh, uh, Dr. Bruce has a, uh, has a new book, uh, The FBI and the CIA, and um, there are a lot of interesting, interesting, interesting thoughts in that book about that relationship um, when it comes to UFOs. Uh, uh, Bruce, thank you for joining us. Tell us about the book, why you wrote it, and, 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 and what you discovered in your research. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, this book is basically a history book written by a physicist. Yeah. And uh, unlike most historians who would be writing this book based on looking what other people said, uh, they, they accept what people comment on uh, you know, as, as written history without questioning whether it's right or not. Whereas I, uh, there's an interface here between um, real physics of the of the sightings, the physics involved in sightings, and uh, the explanations that are proffered by the experts, you might say. Well, uh, um, so in the, in, the, in the history, you find certain sightings have various explanations that were given, and uh, somebody who's familiar with the sciences would realize that the explanations make no sense. And uh, one of the things that I had um, discovered as I was reading history of UFOs starting in the, the late 60s when I became sort of actively interested in reading books on it and then getting into actual investigations, one of the things that always puzzled me was how did the Air Force, or Project Blue Book and its predecessors, get away with providing, uh, proposing explanations that didn't make any sense uh, and not get any uh, well, con not get the scientific community all stirred up against well, their explanations. For example, this... in the Kenneth Arnold case, which everybody should know, was the first uh, reported UFO sighting, June 24, 1947. There are like seven explanations offered for that. None of them are any good. Any uh, a typical historian will just write down what the explanation has been offered, and not analyze it. But I analyze it. The uh, official explanation by the Air Force for Kenneth Arnold sighting is mirage, and um, they don't give any really good justification for why it would be called a mirage. But uh, to the press and the average person, they probably would accept that as, as a logical explanation uh, until to you. The scientists realize that he's talking about a mountaintop mirage. <clears throat> mountaintop mirages stay over the top of the mountains. One of the major characteristics of these things that Kenneth Arnold saw was flying from his far left to his far right, going past mountaintops. Uh, a very large amount of lateral motion, whereas mountaintop mirages stay right over the mountaintops. So how come the Air, the Air Force allows this uh, impossible explanation to exist, couldn't they think of something better, or admit that they couldn't explain it? And, and mirages and mirages don't skip through the air like a, a saucer floating, uh, uh, skipping across water. So I mean, that's not what a mirage does. And he's looking at actual movement of the objects. Yeah, and the major characteristic of the sighting, if Kenneth Arnold was, had anything right at all, it was his observation that he saw these first to the north of him. Then they traveled southward all the way past him and down and disappeared in the south. So it's a huge amount of lateral motion, whereas a uh, mountaintop mirage stays right over the top of a mountain. 
And he was also very precise in describing the shape of these things. They certainly were not saucer-shaped. Right. And he and was they, very precise in describing it. He said they flashed uh, light, sunlight towards him like a, a surface of a mirror. And mirages don't do that either. Exactly. So, well, so their their shape, as uh, originally drawn, ha- uh, look a lot like the c- common modern triangles. Well, it like. also looks uh, like the crescent some, that crashed. What what he, what, what he drew for the uh, air for the air force in his official air force report, written a few weeks later, he drew something that's got a semicircular front and a sort of a convex uh, triangular shape on the back. Uh, there was, he said, there were nine objects. One of them had this double crescent on the back, and for some reason or other, everybody picks up on that one. But the one that uh, the, the, the typical shape was, uh, I guess, uh, semicircular with this convex t- shape on it. Well, the, the point that I'm trying to make is uh, one of the things that interested me about um, this subject was that the Air Force was getting away with garbage explanations. Mm. Oh, absolutely. And I had to ask myself, why in the world? How could they do that? Uh, and the answer was that they were bottling up the information and not letting the scientific community have the best stuff. But the uh, internal Air Force people, uh, they knew that um, this uh, explanation and many explanations for other sightings were no good. And in 1948, about a year after the sightings began, in 1948, uh, the members of Project Sign that had been set up to investigate uh, the sightings uh, created a document called the Estimate of the Situation. Uh, hmm. They're basically writing and saying, well, this is what we know about these things, what's been reported. We make an estimate of what's going on, and we, we estimate that the only logical conclusion is that these are extraterrestrial, or they use the term interplanetary devices, because they seem to be real hard devices. They're doing things that we can't, we can't explain. Uh, it looks like technology that's far beyond our own. So they concluded that it was um, interplanetary. Well, do we know and who they, wrote Project, who was on Project Sign, who, did, were there any names connected with that? Well, there probably were, except that the, the document was destroyed way back in the 50s. Uh, mm. the, Captain Edward Rupel said that he, he saw one, and I don't know why the one that he left, he had, uh, I don't know where it went, but um, the... Uh, People were dis- ordered to destroy the copies uh, by General Vandenberg. They went to, they sent the, the document up through channels to General Vandenberg, who was the chief of the staff of the Air Force at the time. And according to Ruppelt's book, the report on unidentified flying objects, published in 1955, and Captain Ruppelt was the first director of Project Blue Book. He was the first person to put together a history of the subject. According um, to Ruppelt, the people at at uh, the Air Technical Intelligence Center, or what became that, uh, told him he 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 started in 1951, uh, and so he was getting what was already ancient history when he asked these people what was going on. And they told him about the estimate of the situation and how they had sent it up to Vandenberg. Vandenberg had rejected it. A group of men from the uh, Air Material Command who analyzed these settings went and talked to Vandenberg directly, and he basically said, "Sorry, wrong answer." come back with a better answer. Well, he wouldn't accept interplanetary as an official yeah. answer. And up yet, to that point, and yet, that point MJ, and yet look at the MJ-12 documents and there is Vandenberg's name. Right. 
But I, my, my book is based on all the stuff that we have that's unquestioned documents. So well, I, sure. I, I certainly know about the MJ-12 documents, but I don't use sure. those at all in the book. Okay, what well, I use is log logic. Well, here's what's funny. Talk about logic. So, regardless of what the public thought about uh, Kenneth Arnold, clearly somebody had Kenneth Arnold investigated. Because uh, when um, uh, uh, Frank Brown, I think, who was the lieutenant, who was the co-pilot on that B-25 Mitchell bomber flying up to uh, Washington to uh, pick up the, the uh, quote-unquote slag from the Maury Island beach that had been collected, he had done his research on Kenneth Arnold and had written it. Arnold was a good American. He was a family man. I mean, you can fill in the blanks. He was everything everybody wanted an American to be circa 1947. And that was the only reason that these two pilots went up to Washington to pick up this material. It was because Frank, it was because um, I think it was uh, Fred Chrisman had engaged, had commissioned Kenneth Arnold to investigate the Maury Island sighting, which he thought right. was a hoax. And, um, but because his name was attached, that brought these two pilots up. So clearly, despite the fact that, uh, that the Air Force might have, dis that the Army Air Force might have dismissed Kenneth Arnold, clearly Army CIC... Army Air Force CIC really believed uh, that he was an honorable person, an honest person, and that's why they dispatched this uh, B-25 bomber to pick up the slag in the first place, because Kenneth Arnold had, had, had called him about it. So, I mean, the Army Air Force's own actions belie what the Air Force later said about this. essentially believing a lot of the reports, uh, admitting they believe them. On the 10th of July, uh, they, uh, the Air Force asked the FBI to investigate witnesses to make sure that there was no possibility of uh, communist subversion going on here. And, of course, they found out that uh, there, were, there were no communist subversives. And the FBI, FBI investigated for a couple of months and talked to um, uh, two dozen, I think, witnesses approximately including Arnold, mm -hmm. and uh, decided that uh, they're, they're all basically all on the up and up, and they saw things that were detailed descriptions of... I go into this in some depth in the book. Uh, I combine the, uh, the rejection of the estimate of the situation. Now, that was a key thing that happened uh, uh, in the early days. But up to that point, and so uh, starting in 1947 with all the sightings and uh, going into 1948, in the summer of 1948, um, the uh, Project Sign people had uh, hoax, misidentification of uh, normal phenomena, uh, Soviet craft, our own secret craft, and interplanetary mm -hmm. as five general um, generalized explanations. The, the misidentification could go into a whole bunch of possibilities of stars and planets and uh, uh, Well, well, what? Anything, anything you can see in the air, airplanes and stuff, stuff like that. Um, but then when General kicked down, rejected the interplanetary explanation, 
uh, I took away an explanation and forced the uh, people working for Project Blue Book, uh, Project Sign, Project Grudge, and Project Blue Book, those people had to come up with explanations other than interplanetary. And that's why they came up with things like uh, the uh, explanation for Arnold sighting being a, a mirage. Uh, and uh, I listed a number of sightings in the in the book where the explanation makes absolutely no sense. Uh, and, and my argument for that is because uh, interplanetary was removed as an acceptable explanation when Vandenberg kicked back the estimate of the situation. Now you may ask, why did he kick back the estimate of the situation? And my guess is he couldn't allow interplanetary to become an, an acceptable explanation because if it did, then somehow information would leak out. The Air Force was uh, finding interplanetary craft flying around and admitting it. They couldn't okay. admit it. Was the estimate of the situation uh, document, was it a few pages a few or a few paragraphs? Uh, I suspect that it was a number of pages. Mm -hmm. I suspect that it had a cover. It had a, uh, a format that started off with a top-level uh, discussion of what was going on, followed by uh, an appendix or tab references to various sightings that uh, they thought were true. There was, it was a top-secret document that became available, published in November 48 uh, by the uh, Joint Air Force and the Pentagon, Air Force Intelligence in the Pentagon and the Navy. Uh, uh, and that document argued um, that there was something really going on, uh, and they tried to make it fit into the Soviet hypothesis that the Russians were flying things around our, our country. Uh, but they did admit that there were a bunch of sightings that they couldn't explain. Uh, <clears throat> and that, as I said, was a top-secret document, which might have been uh, a distant relative of the estimate. One of my... Uh, um, if one believes that um, Walter Hout's statement that he made in Contemplation of Death, that um, is on the Internet but was also published first published by... Um, uh, Schmidt and Carey, uh, Don Schmidt and Tom Carey, if, if, if that is accurate, if that is true, I believe it is, but if that is true, then according to that statement, the Air Force was actually in, well, the Army was actually um, involved in a cover-up of what was going on from the very moments, even before Jesse Marcel flew the debris to Fort Worth. Um, according to that affidavit, uh, Ramey shows up, General Ramey shows up at the 509th, shows up at Roswell um, yeah, with right. his aide, DuBose, and they show up there, and they put into place, they basically, Hout says there were actually two events, one 75 miles away, one 40 miles away, from the town, from the city. And <clears throat> Ramey's plan was to cop to one of them because elements, civilian elements from the city of Roswell, the sheriff had rolled on it, George Wilcox rolled on it, Frankie Rowe's father and the fire department had, had rolled on it, and people at the base knew about it, Alpha Boyd's father knew about it. Now, he was there, and so, so, so that was public information. What Ramey then did was after, according to Hout, was when Marcel got to Fort Worth and they switched out the debris and Marcel had to basically agree that, oh, I made a big mistake, 
how describes him coming back to the 509th a, 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 a changed individual? He was angry. He said he wasn't going to talk about it anymore. He didn't want to even talk about it with how he was just angry about it. So I spoke to Jesse Marcel Jr. about it, and he said that there was a marked change in his father when he came back from Fort Worth. He said that when he got back to Fort Worth, he, t- he sat Jesse down and, and, and his mother down, and he said, we will never talk about what I showed you again. It doesn't exist. And even after the Korean War broke out, that's when uh, Major Marcel left the Air Force and uh, returned to Homer, Louisiana um, to repair television sets. I mean, but, but what's like fascinating is, but what's fascinating was how, how that cover-up, how something was in motion as early as July 1947. Well, uh, maybe because they had other, other stuff that had occurred beforehand. That's what I think. I think that the Kenneth Arnold sighting was unnerving. I think that we know that there were elements of the FBI that were, well, uh, a banister. That's what I was just going to mention. In, yeah. in around 48, the, X, uh, the real X-Files, the FBI creates a thing called a weird desk, I believe, right? Yeah. So I wanted, so I wanted to ask, since we're talking about something that comes into the Army Air Force, it eventually all this stuff goes to the Air Force Right, because the services split, split on August 1st, 1947. But then where does the CIA come in and or the FBI? Where, and do they all share information, do you think? Well, we're, we're lucky that the FBI acts like a black hole. On, uh, when these sightings started with Kenneth Arnold being reported in the newspaper on June 25th, then other people starting to say they saw some just yesterday or whatever. Some people reporting that they had seen something weird in the, in the sky months, weeks, or months before. The implication being that there was a, a spread of a spread of sightings that were not reported because nobody knew that they were important to report. When Arnold's when sighting was reported, uh, he thought that he was seeing some new special type of aircraft. Um, People began to say, "Well, I saw something in the in the sky too." Even my grandmother saw something—a uh, couple of round objects that were traveling traveling westward—and then made a right angle turn to the north. And Grandma wasn't an aeronautical engineer, but she knows that things don't go make a right angle turn. What, what state? <laughs> so, what state was this in? Huh? That was What's... in Green. That was in Greenfield, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Wow. And what year? Uh, probably 1947. It wasn't until years later that we, we discussed it, that Grandma, when she had told my mother, and my mother couldn't remember exactly what year, and then I interviewed my grandmother in the 60s and got her first-hand testimony as to what she saw in this very brief sighting. Oh. And I looked up uh, in Ted Locher's book of the 1947 wave, and sure enough, there was a sighting in Greenfield, Massachusetts. It wasn't hers, but somebody had reported it. Uh, what do you think... Um what do you think that the CIA's role? I mean, how did the CIA get involved? And well, they obviously first of all, have... I want to tell about the FBI because that's the one that's the important one. Okay. Yes, uh, I got the FBI files in 1977. I was the first person to do that, and I went through the whole file and put it in the historical order because it's in garbage form. If you go to that, if you go to the uh, archives and look at the 
the, the sequence of pages, uh, things are out of, out of order. But anyway, um, it turns out that the FBI uh, was asked by the Air Force, Air Force Intelligence and the Pentagon contacted the FBI on the 10th of July asking for uh, help in uh, interviewing people and finding out whether or not there was, as I mentioned before, there was some communist subversion going on. People generating spurious reports of things in the sky that make the American public feel that the Air Force couldn't control what was going on. <clears throat> and so um, the Air Force contacted the FBI to get inter interview the FBI to interview people, and uh, Hoover, in a famous note, said, I would do it, but we must demand full access to all this recovered. And that's uh, all that stuff's in the book. Um, so the Air Force, the FBI did investigate the Air witnesses for a couple of months and then found that there was sort of a uh, scam going on as far as the Air Force was concerned, passing off what the Air Force considered to be garbage reports to the FBI, and the FBI decided it didn't want to be investigating garbage reports. Ash can covers and toilet seats is a specific terminology that was used. <laughs> the Air Force, the FBI said, okay, we're not interested in doing this anymore. Uh, however, they had opened a channel to the Air Force intelligence and from then on, the Air Force would be sending them stuff, and the FBI would be filing it. Occasionally, the FBI would, would react to what the Air Force was saying, but mostly the, Air Force, the FBI just acted like a black hole and stored stuff. I was told that back in the 1977 when I got these documents that the reason they still existed was local FBI offices could burn stuff after five years. Wow. But yeah. Congress had directed that the headquarters of Central of FBI could not destroy any documents at all, ever. So this stuff, which was already 30 years old when I got it, um, was still there, still available because of the uh, uh, because of this ruling by the uh, uh, Congress. Anyway, the FBI stored documents and uh, they provided information on the Air Force investigation that isn't even in the FBI in the uh, Project Blue Book file, which is supposed to claim contain. The Project Blue Book file, in, in, in large, is a combination of the, the, uh, um, the first investigation, the Project Grudge, Project, what's the first one? Uh, sign? Not sign. Well, anyway, first, the first one, the first, uh, the first investigation for a year, then Project Grudge for a couple of years, and then Project Blue Book from 1962 on to 1969 when the Air Force closed the whole thing. Uh, the FBI collected documents and uh, uh, information in, in uh, 1952 during the time of the big flap. Um, they had a, uh, uh, a document in the FBI file, which isn't in the Air Force file at all, in which it says uh, that uh, as, a, as a result of... Uh, all these sightings, several percent could not be explained, and certain top-level people were seriously considering interplanetary craft as an explanation. And it gets a little, more, a little more complicated than that, but this is all spelled out in detail in the book. And one of the guys who was a consultant to Air Force Intelligence at the, in Washington, D.C., in the Pentagon, uh, Dr. Stefan Passoni, who uh, later became the uh, sort of father of the Star Wars program, um, he uh, was writing a document to General Garland, 
one of the, one of the top generals in the Air Force at the time. And uh, Posoni wanted to uh, get a, some trips to uh, wanted to get wanted to justify money, getting money for a trip to Europe to uh, ostensibly uh, check on uh, aeronautical advances in, in various countries in Europe, but also to, to find out what's going on with uh, UFOs and flying saucers. And he says the Air Force cannot assume that flying saucers are interplanetary. Now, this is in the middle of a document. Most people would ignore it, but when I read that, I said, what? The Air Force assumes that, uh, you know, flying saucers are interplanetary? Oh. That's uh, very interesting. Mm. And then uh, when you come, uh, that was in April of 1952, and when in uh, August, of, uh, yeah, August of 1952, you come on a uh, um, FBI document that says top-level people are seriously considering interplanetary ships mm. because it sounds awfully much like the top guys know what's going on. They've set up a policy that uh, interplanetary is not an acceptable explanation for sightings, so therefore they're bottling up the information. Uh, uh, and bad publicity, poking fun of witnesses and so on, um, helped the Air Force continue this cover-up. And uh, uh, on uh, July 28, 1952, um, Top General General John Samford, the uh, director of Air Force Intelligence, held a press conference, uh, a famous press conference, in which he basically said all this UFO stuff was was weather-related or national phenomena, as far as he was concerned. The press went away after the press conference, all happy that yeah. all, they had basically blown flying saucers out of the water. It was sightings over Washington D.C. that had occurred in the previous week were supposedly just due to thermal uh, temperature, inversion. uh, temperature inversions, bending radio waves, and stuff like that. So uh, you might say that General Sanford drove the final nail into the coffin of UFOs and for uh, established a tradition that there's nothing to the subject. And we're sort of still living under that tradition. Oh, oh sure. And, you know, according to Donald Kehoe, uh, uh, Sanford, General Sanford, had a real crisis of conscience. I mean, Kehoe said, he wrote, that Sanford was really struggling with whether or not to tell the truth because to people like Ruppelt and others who knew the truth, it was so obvious what was going on. There had been a crash in Braxton County um, uh, of West Virginia. Um, the Army had rolled on that crash. Civilian law enforcement authorities, the sheriff from Braxton County was involved. And so there was a lot of activity around it. Air Force pilots had been mobilized. They were ordered to shoot down these things. Ruppelt described some of the pilot reports in, in uh, his own book. And so he, he even said that Kehoe wrote that or said that Samford was really struggling with his conscience because he was an honest person. And this would have been a flat-out, complete public lie. Yeah, he, he was responding not just to the Braxton County crash, but there have been literally hundreds of sightings uh, in July, June, July, and August of uh, 1952. I call it the year of the UFO. You can go to my website and see a whole uh, section on it. Um, yeah, and I should mention, anybody who's not familiar with your website, it's really one of the UFO libraries that you have to bookmark and just be glad it's there, because 
Bruce puts a, a lot of depth and detail into it, and as an optical physicist, um, when it comes to a sighting, you, there's nobody better. So I'm sure, but so, so uh, can you clear up for us what, um, you know, so, so you were not contacted by the CIA, or you were, and so forth? Well, that, that, that's, a, that's another part of the story, which is, which is later. Uh, the first part of my book covers the history, early history in some considerable depth to establish that there really was something going on, and the government knew it. Uh, you can tra- you can get right with the same conclusion whether you assume that Roswell is true or not. Even if you don't have Roswell, you can prove that the Air Force uh, was covering up stuff. And I've given you a little bit of a uh, feeling for that. If you go to Brumac, B-R-U-M-A-C dot eight k.com brumac.number8letterk.com you'll find 100 megabytes worth of stuff to keep you off the streets for a while <clears throat> yeah. anyway and you, um, yeah. yeah and and so so does that bring us to uh, if it brings well, us asked, to, uh, asked earlier what was what was the CIA doing right. in yes. the early days now, the yes. FBI as I said was acting like a black hole the CIA was paying very little attention to what was going on until a big flap in the summer, at which point they said, well, we better check up on this. And in August began their own investigation. They began by investigating Project Blue Book. Project Blue Book was investigating witnesses. The CIA was investigating Project Blue Book and concluded that Project Blue Book was okay if all you wanted to do was divide sightings into ones you could explain and ones you couldn't. Mm-hmm. This Project Blue Book wasn't doing anything with the ones that they couldn't. They just put them aside and said, well, whatever it is, it's unidentified. <coughs> so the CIA got interested in the fall of 1952, and it looked like they were going to set up their own uh, continual investigation until the so-called Robertson panel in uh, February or January or February of 1953, uh, especially a panel of people who were not experts in the UFO field, but experts in their own fields, of course. Uh, got together and uh, decided that all sightings could be explained, and, <laughs> which uh, contradicted a number of uh, investigations that the Air Force had done. Was the Robertson and, panel and, a civilian uh, panel or a legislative panel? That was a, that was a civilian panel of scientists. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it helped. And uh, they offered they offered their opinion that there was one one bad thing about flying saucer sightings that they could possibly jam communications channels if. If the, if the Russians were to uh, send a whole bunch of uh, spurious, or generate somehow a bunch of spurious flying saucer reports and jam up the channels of communication just before launching an attack, that could be bad news. So they re- re- recommended uh, a definite effort to debunk flying saucer sightings and make them no longer interesting to the general public. Right. Uh, they, were, they did this after... The big flap in 1952 was all over by this time, and uh, so people had sort of thought flying saucers had gone away. They had <clears throat> hundreds of sightings were collected every year by uh, the Project Blue Book people all the way up to 1969. And then um, in 1967 or 66, uh, the Congress had directed the Air Force to hold a project to submit support a investigation independent of Project Blue Book, and that became the Conan, Univers- the Conan Project at the University of Colorado, where they uh, investigated uh, not some 90 sightings and uh, couldn't explain about one-third of them. But they, uh, nevertheless, Conan wrote in his executive summary that 
far as he was concerned, there hadn't been anything, any information gained by our investigation. He didn't expect that the Air Force would learn any more than what was coming. So he recommend, effectively recommended getting out of it, and the Air Force took that recommendation and, <clears throat> and it closed Project Blue Book in 69. And since then, there's been no official government uh, agency accepting flying saucers. And right. the NSA is never a part of this whole story, right? The NSA had uh, sighting stuff. It wasn't until the middle 70s, in 75, uh, 74, 75 time frame, Congress came up with the uh, Freedom of Information Act. It became uh, law of the land in 75, I believe it was, or 76. Well, I, I spoke. That's when people started writing for stuff, and I was one of the first people. I was working on the uh, Trent photo case at that point. Yes. Paul Trent and his wife. Yes. And Todd, according to um, um, James McDonald's interview uh, notes that I was able to get from Mrs. McDonald, her, his notes on uh, his, his talk with uh, Paul Trent indicated that Paul, Paul said that two FBI guys had come to visit him where, where he was working. Uh, on a farm, and so I uh, thought, well, it's a dim possibility, but maybe the FBI would tell me if they had any records on Paul Trendy, or they wouldn't tell me what the record said. So I decided to write to the FBI to see if I could get any information on Paul Trent, and I sort of included, oh, by the way, if you got anything on UFOs, let me know. That uh, was, I think, September of 1976. And I get back and within 10 days a letter from them saying your, your request is number 30,422 <laughs> or some big number like that. So I figured by the turn of the century I might hear something. Right. To my great surprise, uh, uh, in May of 77, I was working at my desk when I got a phone call from a surprised FBI agent who said that he had no idea they had FBI documents on this stuff, but he uh, found some 1,600 pages. And uh, that, of course, is all now ancient history and uh, forms a, a key part of what's in the book because of the FBI, as I said, collecting information that isn't even in the, F in the Project Blue Book file. Now, the CIA, when they got interested and in, uh, got then dropped out of it as a result of the Robertson panel, just sort of uh, uh, documents indicating they sort of kept track of, uh, kept track of what was going on on a very uh, low-key basis. Up, up through the 60s and 70s. But, what, but what we now know that the CIA got into paranormal stuff. Uh, metal bending and uh, psychokinesis yeah. and uh, remote because viewing. Of, and and in, in particular, they were interested in remote viewing. And they were doing remote viewing experiments uh, at Stanford Research Institute uh, in the mid-70s mid that were funded directly by the CIA. Um, and uh, perhaps from NSA and other other funds as well. Uh, and uh, well, Ingo Swan, uh, Ingo Swan, who was uh, partly responsible for getting that CIA funding with Harold Putoff and and um, at the um, right, at yeah at SRI, Ingo Swan said that he'd been contacted by the CIA. Um, right. Who was who'd been escorting him to places like Alaska to yeah, see the Chris, UFO? Christopher um, Green was one of the guys involved with that. Yeah, Chris. And yeah. It's yeah now it's important to note that these remote viewer guys sometimes remotely viewed flying saucers. 
Well, so did Paul Smith. I know, I, yeah. I knew Eldon Bird. Eldon Bird was a guy who was into paranormal stuff and metal bedding and so on. He worked at the Naval Surface Warfare Center where I did. We'd get together and talk every now and then. He'd tell me about uh, psychic stuff, and I'd think to myself, That's, this guy's pure crap. Yeah. And at the same time, he'd talk to me and say, I don't believe in UFOs. <laughs> so the uh, the paranormal guys were uh, disbelievers in UFOs, but then their own psychics, their own remote right. viewers, started re remote viewing some UFOs. And I guess that attracted their attention. Uh, by chance, some famous sightings from Australia, from New Zealand, occurred in the December of 1978. Right, yes. The, the New Zealand sightings uh, were publicized around the world as being having a movie involved the first movie of UFOs and uh, um, the TV station that publicized these Channel O what was Channel O in uh, Melbourne Australia uh, was severely criticized for saying that they had the world's first film of UFOs and they, and they said how, the critics said how, how, how do you know that how can you prove it have you done an investigation and the TV channel had to admit it they, they had gone public with it immediately. They got the, the film on uh, the more early morning of December 31st, and they publicized it the next day. Uh, the reporter, uh, Quentin Fogarty, who was in New Zealand, was, took the film back to the station that was in Aust Melbourne, Australia, developed the film, and uh, made put together a half-hour documentary. I was told they sold it for 50000 sold immediate news rights for 50000 bucks to a whole bunch of countries. Uh, so did that end up at the? Uh, did that film end up at the end of the movie called UFO? That came out in the. F I want to say when did it? Seventies. Did it come out in the seventies? Yeah. You know where they had it two they had uh, two bits of film at the end. The film UFO in black and white, uh, a film by that name was done in 1955 or 56 or something like that. Uh, it, it features the Great Great Falls Montana film, and the uh, Utah. Okay. Trevor, uh, Trevor Utah film. film. Right, right. There right. was a film. Uh, was was that the film that Al Chop was in? There was yes. one film where right. Al Chop was in. Well, he was, he right. was represented. That's UFO. Yeah. That was UFO. UFO. Yeah. In fact, folks could probably find it on the Anomalies channel on your Roku box. The, the, the New Zealand film has been featured in a number, number of uh, documentaries over the years because it's the... Uh, that particular sighting involved people on an airplane, the pilot and the co-pilot, and a news crew of three uh, yeah. that uh, saw stuff and uh, radar, ground radar, and airplane radar. It's a very complicated situation. It's well, the only we... sighting, it's still the only sighting after all these years that's been publicized, been described and argued out in a refereed uh, journal called Applied Optics. Uh, but anyway... The importance of that for the present story is, and this is all in the book. Um, well, I was uh, I, I was asked to do the investigation, quite by chance. Uh, the TV station said, "Well, we've been criticized for not investigating this sighting, so we'll hold an investigation." I handed them the problem: of who's going to investigate UFOs? And they called up a guy named Paul Norman, who was a longtime NICAP guy. Uh, and he recommended they take it to NICAP in Washington, D.C., and so uh, four days after or something like that, the film was shown in the, the world. I got a call from Jack Acuff, who was the president of NICAP at the time, and uh, their 
bring the film to New York, to the United States. You want to see it? Took me about four microseconds to say, yeah, I'll look at it. And uh, a week after it was taken, I had it in my house uh, to analyze. Uh, that began a several-year effort. I didn't know how long it was going to take at the, at the very beginning. I might have wondered, <laughs> is this worth doing <laughs> had I known? But anyway, I, uh, the, the TV station support, supported me, shall we say, uh, to fly to Australia and New Zealand and interview all the witnesses and collect all the data I could. And when I came back, I uh, wanted some help on the radar stuff. I knew enough about it to get some basic information out of the radar detections, but the question is, were they really anomalous detections or could they be explained? So anyway, I uh, discussed this problem with uh, uh, some people, and one guy recommended that I talked to some radar expert at the CIA, and uh, as a matter of fact, he uh, he made the connection for me. I got a phone call inviting me to the CIA, and uh, they said, well, we'll be willing to give you some help on radar if you uh, will tell us what it's all about. So I went there to the headquarters in Langley and uh, talked with guys, I guess it was. Uh, Bruce, we're losing you a little bit. Can you speak a little bit closer to the mic? Yeah. Um, we lost you at we lost you at they, they 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 wanted me to go over the whole sighting and uh, uh, this guy Christopher Green was there, uh, one of the people listening and he uh, uh, invited me back later to discuss UFOs in general. Uh, he was the person who had had all the uh, CIA documents when the CIA had been sued um, a lawsuit against the CIA to. Uh, Got all the FBI, all the UFO documents the CIA had. That document, that that lawsuit was successful in December of 1978, pulling out 900 pages of stuff from the CIA. But the, the point I'm making is the, the connection that I got was because of this one sighting, the uh, the uh, the New Zealand sightings, and the uh, fact that the uh, um, CIA guys were interested in it, perhaps because of their Psychic stuff, the remote viewer, remote viewers seeing UFOs. Anyway, uh, I uh, visited the CIA a couple of times, just as general discussion, and one time for a radar. And then I expected never to go back there again. Uh, in 1979, that was all I was interested in helping the CIA, and they didn't really do anything. They really didn't give me any help. That was it as far as I was concerned, and for the next several years I was analyzing uh, the film and the radar and so on. There's several different articles on the subject and uh, on my website that you can read. And then uh, you encountered the JAL flight, right? In 1984, I was minding my own business when I got a phone call from the CIA. This guy, Ronald Pandolfi. Yep. And uh, he wants me to described to him. He wants me to present to the CIA the work that I had been doing on creating underwater sound with laser pulses. Take a high power, high energy, uh, short pulse uh, CO2 laser in the water and it creates a noise underwater and you could use that for signaling or whatever. So, wait, wait, wait. I have to stop and you here. He knew so, that, he wait, knew wait, Bruce. The, Bruce, I have a quick question. Was it successful? Was the Ex or were the experiments in creating an underwater signaling with lasers 
was that were they successful experiments? Yes. So that if I were in a sub, let's say like the Sea Wolf, which was off the southern coast of Long Island in 1997, in July, as a matter of fact, and a signal had to be sent to the Sea Wolf, not yet commissioned, underwater to send coordinates for targeting. That underwater laser could have done it. Well, yeah, it would have been done from an airplane up above. The idea was to be able to fly over an area where you, you don't know exactly where the sub is. Submarines hate to know, hate, hate to think that anybody knows where they are. So you have a, a certain area that you've got to cover, and you send out what would have been a coded series of bursts of energy making a snapping sound, which would penetrate down 500 feet or 1,000 feet into the ocean, and um, you'd set out a burst and another burst and another burst as you fly along. Uh, uh, the, the airplane wouldn't know when it goes over the sub. The sub would receive these bursts and uh, uh, decode it and get whatever message was supposed to be sent. That was the, gen the general idea. Right, Unfortunately, and we, were, we were in competition with this big electromagnetic uh, uh, low-frequency thing called Project Sanguine mm -hmm. that uh, was basically radio waves at low frequency that also penetrate the ocean. And, but, uh, but but do do either of those methods hurt the existing sea life, either the laser-generated <coughs> or the um, low-frequency? I don't know about the low-frequency. Uh, the, laser, the laser method wasn't strong enough to do anything to the, to the sea life. That's not like the big uh, acoustic stuff that the Navy's been sending out big, uh, high, high-intensity bursts of sound, uh, sonar, essentially, uh, to, uh, so, um, well, it takes, a lot, it takes a lot more energy than this laser was putting out right, to, right. to affect something. Okay, the I'm sorry. I, the, reason I, I, the reason I bring it up is because Ronald Pavelsi wanted to, uh, wanted me to discuss this, uh, um, laser-generated underwater sound, and uh, I didn't uh, say anything, and I wasn't planning to say anything about my previous experience with the CIA, uh, you know, leaving UFOs out of the picture, in other words. So that's one. The first phone call I get on this afternoon, some afternoon in uh, uh, 1984, I think it was May '84, whatever. It was. Um, and then I got another phone call when he wants to uh, establish what time and location and stuff and some other details. And then he says, I understand you've been here before. And uh, I sort of had this sinking feeling. <laughs> Uh-oh, my cover's been blown. Because I had to admit I'd been there before. And it turned out that Christopher Green, who was one of the guys who heard me talk in 1979 about the New Zealand sightings, was still there in 1984. And uh, Ron had been talking for some reason or other about inviting me to. Uh, I remember, I worked for the Navy at the Naval Service Warfare Center, so this is all uh, classified stuff we were talking about. Um, unfortunately for me, I know what the letter C meant, the letter S, and TS. Okay. But Hillary apparently has still got to learn that. Anyway. Well, actually, actually um, w uh, when you were asked to do the briefing, um, did it contain these materials, basically? Well, the, the, for the briefing that I was asked to give was, uh, in 1984, was um, 
how, how to generate underwater sound, how effective it was, how far it traveled, and all that sort of stuff. Well, I'm talking about they, the briefing. They didn't, they, didn't ask, they didn't ask for a briefing on UFOs in No, no, I'm talking about the, it says here, um, it says here in the little press release that you wrote a briefing at the request of the CIA and presented it to Dr. John Gibbons. Right. Now, that's in 1993. Okay. That's okay. many years later. Yeah. Okay. okay. During the 1980s, from 84 on, I was, uh, had established contact with the CIA, basically, and we were tra- we were doing Navy work. The, the justification for all this was uh, doing Navy work related to anti-submarine warfare, anti-mine warfare, and techniques that uh, use the uh, laser-generated underwater sound for these various uh, things we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But also, we also discussed um, we also discussed uh, UFOs. And uh, I sort of uh, uh, told Ron, you know, what I, what I was learning. He was, he was interested in the subject. Um, <clears throat> for us, the most important thing the CIA did was, uh, with respect to the JAL-1628 case, November 17th, I think it was, 1986, yep. the uh, jumbo jet flying over Alaska and uh, flying, flying southward and seeing... First of all, a couple of things: bright uh, objects with multiple lights attached, suddenly appearing in front of this airplane that's doing 600 miles an hour, and um, one above the other, uh, and then all of a sudden they switched to be side by side, uh, vertical row. A couple of each one was two vertical rows of, of flashing lights or exhaust ports or whatever, and. Uh, um, some sort of a dark structure. It was it was after sunset, so the sky was dark, and uh, they could just they could see the lights. And um, the captain felt heat on his face when they say when they first appeared. It's a quite a complicated uh, sighting, which uh, I could go into great detail on. Is in the book, but the point is, I was able to write the uh, sighting up and publish in the uh, IOR and also in the Mufine Journal, uh, because of Ron Pandolfi. The sighting occurred on the 17th of November of 1986. Um, and uh, air, air, people from the Federal Aeronautics Administration, the FAA, interviewed the uh, pilot because there had been some, apparently some radar detections associated with what the, what the pilot said they were seeing. So they did a, a very brief interview and uh, uh, left it at that on the 17th of November. But the pilots went to New Japan. They were flying wine from uh, Paris to Japan to uh, Tokyo, and they uh, flew to when the pilots landed and started talking about what they had seen and so on. Word got around in the Japanese newspaper that the uh, um, Pilots had seen UFOs and they had been confirmed on radar, mm-hmm. and that was picked up by a, uh, a, a newsman uh, representing an American news organization. He wrote a story after uh, contacting a public information officer at Anchorage Air Force Base, or Anchorage, Alaska Air, uh, Airport, I should say. Paul Stuckey, the uh, was in the uh, information officer. Admitted that yes, there had been a sighting, and uh, then it got into the newspapers in the United States 
the main, the main part of the United States. I remember reading about it in the Washington Post, how the FAA was going to investigate. They said, I think that was the 2nd of January, uh, 1987. <coughs> and um, Ron told me about this sighting before it got published. Uh, I don't know how he knew about it, but he knew about it. And uh, he told me, well, it was apparent that the, uh, the uh, FAA was going to investigate. I told Ron, I could do a better investigation than the FAA. The FAA doesn't know how to investigate UFO stuff. Right. Yeah. So Ron made an arrangement so over a period of a, a month and a half or two months uh, so that I got to uh, um, go and talk to John Callahan, who's become famous on this sighting since. He sure has, yeah. In fact, that was a great story he told at the National Press Club about the CIA walking into a meeting and collecting all of the materials that he had. Yeah. Well, he's not, he hasn't got it exactly right. I don't know that anybody has it exactly right because there weren't instantaneous notes meant. But I know I have a I have a document that I wrote for myself, dated February fifth, nineteen eighty seven, which I say we, Pandolfi and I and another guy went and visited Callahan in his office, and uh, I wasn't really that impressed with Callahan's apparent knowledge of, of the radar, but in any case, we talked to him, and then after I got a chance to look at this video that Callahan had made uh, while uh, he made, he used his own video camera to videotape a screen uh, that was playing back the, the radar detection uh, picked up over the period of time that the airplane was oh. in the air, well, that's and also that's... the voices voices of the, uh, of, the pilot, of the co-pilot doing the communication, and uh, I got to see that, and I told Ron, um, based on what I saw, that the uh, FAA was going to say there was no radar confirmation. And Ron said later on he was impressed because that, that's exactly what the FAA ended up saying in March of 1987 yeah. when they uh, issued their final report. But the thing is, Ron had co collected together the radar tracking data uh, and a bunch of other stuff, and he gave me this box full of information probably the stuff that Callahan is referring to. <laughs> right, because walked, I'd spoken to you because FAA, I'd spoken out. to you. Right, because I'd spoken to you right after we spoke to Callahan. Remember I'd spoken to you and you said the CIA turned around and gave that information to me. Right. Well that that incident was on UFO Hunters, wasn't it? That was the UFO Hunters episode. And it right. was beautifully illustrated and I took those illustrations and there's a really long, nice, nice piece in UFO magazine that I can make available to anybody that wants it for free, uh, just a PDF, but it's very nice. Well, it tells uh, the story, and it just tells that once you get involved with the details from all the different angles and the excited utterance of the Japanese pilot when he landed, for example, um, etc., you begin to really put a story together for yourself. You kind of can't ignore so many different angles corresponding. So here are two well, here are two CIA questions that I have for you. One is... Well, let me ask a question from Chad first. Okay, Chad question. From Jesse, who's on after us. Uh, he wants to know, if Bruce, what, what happened to Jamie Shandera? I don't know. I He's still around. He's still around? He, well, okay, so here's a, a, very, a very quick, because I want to get to two CIA we questions. We do Tesla, Bruce. though. We haven't done any Tesla. Oh, we'll do Tesla. We'll do Tesla. But what I wanted, oh. but but the thing with Chandra was funny, 
because Chandra had, um, uh, well, never mind. That's a long story, and it will take forever to tell no, it. No, no, but Jesse actually already was curious about it. Okay, Jesse, I... it's a long, long story. Uh, it, it, it involves Jamie's then-girlfriend, whose name I will not mention, who wanted to sell a story for an ABC movie of the week having to do with a biker mom trying to save so her are, daughter. These are Hollywood the, people, basically. These are Hollywood people, Hollywood yeah. People. But the story turned out to be kind of a hoax. Chandray, uh, uh, the whole deal fell apart with ABC because the woman's own lawyer told me to get out of this deal. It was a lousy deal. Her own lawyer told me that. Uh, I did. Chandray was furious at me. I saw him at... Uh, Disclosure alert, we were both at High Holy Day services in, 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 in Hollywood. And uh, so I saw him at Temple, and he said, you and I are no longer together. Uh, so I said, really? okay, fine. Thank you, Jamie. And that was about 15 years ago. What I wanted to ask Bruce real quick were two CIA questions. One was, did the CIA react to the RB47 sighting, A, and Bruce, when you read... The history, uh, the CIA's own history of UFOs. How did that impress you? Well, as far as the first question is concerned, you're talking about the RB47 in the 1950s. That yes. Red Sparks has been, <coughs> and so far as I know, I've seen no information, CIA documents that uh, relate to that. I mean, CIA James documents was all over it. James McDonald investigated it thoroughly. McDonald, uh, yeah, but the CIA at that time was not paying much attention to UFO stuff. They looked at the scene in the late 1950s, uh, year by year, and uh, we're not seeing anything that's interesting. The Air Force is handling the problem, and uh, somebody else's problem. As I said, the CIA probably wouldn't have been involved in UFOs at all if it hadn't been for this... Um, uh, paranormal stuff that they got into in the, in the 70s. They were going at, going at, at some considerable funding level through the 80s, and then in the 90s they got busted. I guess you could say. Well, it moved <laughs> over. To, well, it moved over to the army. It was at Fort Meade for a while, and then um, there was after Stubblebine was replaced. Supposedly, this one replacement had made some comment about this was like witchcraft and paranormal voodoo, and the Air Force doesn't do paranormal voodoo, so he shut down the project. But all these folks went into private industry. Right. What about well, the anyway? It's about the CIA and my involvement in in this book, and it's, uh, the, the whole history is there. Uh, after the uh, nineteen, the, well, the report on uh, the uh, Japan Airlines 1628 um, sighting in March of 1987 the uh, Air Air Force issued a press release saying that the radar had uh, been confused there was a radar problem there really wasn't some object next to the uh, big UFO that the captain had talked about and uh, they, they completely ignored the, the full testimony of the uh, of the witnesses as to what was going on the, the first the first part of the sighting before radar was involved they didn't even discuss that so, uh, because I had this big box of data though from Pandolfi I was able to write a long article that filled up the whole journal of the IUR in the June July issue I think it was of 1987 
That was about the same time. There was a whole bunch of things happened. Remember, 1987 was a big year. Oh, yeah. Uh, springtime. Uh, you had Whitley's book coming out, uh, Communion, in uh, February, I think. And then uh, uh, Bud Hopkins' book, uh, Intruders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. About the Copley Woods, uh, yeah. Uh, right. In uh, uh, March of 87. Then and later in March of 87, Bill Moore uh, spilled the beans on MJ-12. Well, I take that back. It first came out by, uh, what's, his, what's his name, uh, in England, um, Timothy Good. Timothy Good, Timothy right. Good, yeah. Timothy Good in England published the uh, MJ-12 papers he had gotten a hold of somehow uh, in a book. And when they got published, Bill Moore, who had been working on them, uh, said, okay, we've got them too. And uh, they basically let all this stuff slip. And uh, there was a huge press reaction. And it was also the same year as... Um, MUFON Symposium being held in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. uh, the 40th anniversary of UFOs. And uh, uh, Nightline did stories on it. And, oh, there's a whole bunch of major newspapers. All this confluence of things that had happened. Was uh, that the conference? And I, uh, that resulted in Ron Pendolfi asking if I would give a UFO lecture at the CIA. So I did, and I basically told them about their own documents, most of the people... Well, what kind of lecture, uh, how many people were at the lecture? Uh, I don't know. 20, 30 people. It wasn't, wasn't, wasn't a major lecture. No, but it also I, wasn't just a, a briefing of, of, of two or three people. No, it was any, anybody, who wanted, anybody who wanted to come, because uh, if they could fit into the room, they were, they were welcome. Was the, conference, was the conference that you were talking about just before that, was that the famous one where Moore told the community that he was... No, you're talking about 1989, I think. Uh, out west somewhere, I forget. It was Arizona, Tucson or something. Mm. Uh, the 1987 conference was, was famous for the first one, being the first one with a, a panel of abductees. Oh. You had Whitley Strebel there. You had um, a Copley Woods girl... Uh, I can't think of her name. Oh, the teen, the the teenage, yeah, the teenage, right. I know who she is. There, there were several, several of the people who worked with, uh, um, with Bud Hopkins uh, in his book *Missing Time*. Several of the witnesses were there. Uh, Eddie Bullard. We asked him to give a lecture on uh, his his uh, analysis of, of abduction stuff. We never, we we didn't. There was a. A nail biter for us putting the conference together to invite him to do anything because we didn't know anything. we didn't even know if he could talk. <laughs> he turned out to be one of the uh, shining lights of the of the bit of the uh, uh, subject, uh, but uh, we didn't know what to expect when he started talking. Anyway, uh, we had uh, over 500 people at that uh, mm -hmm. conference, with him standing in the hallway trying to, trying to hear what was going on. Bruce, anyway, have you? Have you thought about doing a bio? We're just, we were just kind of, um, I'm talking to Jesse in chat in the typing, and you're, you know, just doing a, chrono just putting this all, well, y you would say it's in the parts of other books, but. You might need like a mini-series if you're going to do something like <laughs> yeah. yeah. Actually, it's not. One a movie idea. can't capture the whole story, Nancy. Sorry. Not a bad idea. Like a five-part. Yeah, five, six-part mini-series. Yeah. The real Stranger Things. Mm -hmm. There you go. The real <laughs> Mr. Robot. Seriously. Ah. 
So, anyway, yeah. Yeah, I gave, I, was, I, I gave a lecture on uh, to the CIA. That was the first time I had uh, spoken before the CIA. Uh, as I said, I told them about their own documents. I told them about the MJ-12 stuff uh, and so on. And how did they and, receive uh, your, then, how did they receive your lecture? Were they how did what was their reaction? Well, it was positive, and Ron told me that later, uh, a day or so later that I had created a lot of spies in the agency. Whoa! <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> a lot of people who were trying to use their their tickets to get information that they wouldn't ordinarily try to get. <clears throat> wow! And uh, that had a, that had a spin off for a while. I talk about some other cases in the book. The last case that I presented to the CIA is the, is the magnetic, what I call a magnetic, or the UFO with a magnetic personality. Uh, a very interesting case from Florida, uh, not related to the Gulf Breeze sightings that were also occurring in 1987 and 1988. Um, but this magnetic case in 1991 where uh, this lady sees a flying saucer leaving from behind her house as she's driving home from work. She sees it go up into the sky and then it goes zipping off. As she gets back, she tells her husband uh, about this thing at, at, that night when he gets home. They got up. Uh, the next day he decides to go out and investigate and see if there's any magnetic uh, effect. Um, the reason he thought of magnetism is because in years earlier he had had a UFO fly over his car and all the needles in the dashboard sort of went awry and he somehow connected this up with magnetic effects. So uh, he was more uh, not your typical guy to be doing an investigation. He uh, was an oil man and uh, he had a, a gradient magnetometer device for measuring gra the fluctuation of the magnetic field near the wall casings. They drill a hole somewhere uh, testing for oil, and they drill down a certain distance and drive a steel casing in to hold the dirt from falling in. And uh, these steel casings might be, uh, if, they, if they decide that they don't want this well, they might drive the casing down 10 or 20 feet and uh, just leave it there with a cap on the top uh, and maybe dig it up in many years weeks, months, years later. But they would have to find it. And then in order to find where the hole, where the casing was, they would use this, this device known as a gradient magnetometer. So this guy takes his gradient magnetometer and starts walking around out in the back of his house where he estimates that his wife's, this thing might have come from. Mm. There's a pond out in the back of the house. He notices there's, the pond's about three or four feet deep with grass growing up from the bottom. He notices that there's three circles of depressed grass underwater in this pond. Hmm. But even before he got that, got note of that, he was standing there on the side of the pond, and he holds his wand up, this big long rod that measures the, the uh, field gradient, and uh, he gets a, a positive indication of a strong magnetic field. Hmm. Fortunately, well, he, he checked this out in a number of places, then he called up the local MUFON investigators and told them, come over here and check this out. And so one of the guys brought a video camera, and he videotaped this man walking around uh, with his gradient magnetometer. And uh, the gradient magnetometer makes an acoustic noise, a pitch. The higher the pitch, the stronger the field gradient. 
uh, you can tell on the uh, um, video camera, you can hear the pitch going up and down as he waves his water and wander on it. And I was able to do, essentially do a calibration with his help, do a calibration of this device so we would know what strength magnetic field it was corresponding to the various pitches corresponded to. And uh, it was it was a phenomenally huge field. Mm-hmm. I was told by a guy where I worked, the Naval Service Warfare Center, a guy who was into and a demagnetization of ships and, and magnetic mines and stuff like that. He said, "This field that you're talking about is corresponding to being like 30 feet in front of a destroyer." Wow. <laughs> this wow. is a huge piece of metal. This big ship, the destroyer. Well, so it was really a uh, huge distortion of the Earth's field is what we're talking about. Right. And it was there for one day, and then two days later it was gone. Now that oh. raises two questions. The first question is, how the hell was there a field there in the first place? There's nothing magnetic in the area. It was sandy soil, trees, and stuff like that. There weren't any big pieces of metal, no houses. No, nothing that could explain, explain this big frequency change. But then if you do magnetize something, it usually holds its magnetism for a long time. Why did it disappear in three days? So its, it's presence on one day is a question, and its disappearance the next day is a What was your theory? Question. What was your theory? Well, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. One of the guys walking, realizing what was going on, that they shouldn't be detecting. The strongest field they got was in the top of a tree, a pine tree. There's no magnetic effect in the top of a pine tree. Did, uh, did so this guy, person... You can hear one of the, the MUFON guys saying, oh, they, they, they can't see anything. It was a nice blue sky up above. And he says they must have their Klingon cloaking device on. Well, that's what I was thinking. I mean, but <laughs> did this guy actually see Did this guy actually see anything... Um, but couldn't this be a residue in the from pond. something sitting I mean, down? I mean, in the pond. He saw three depressions. That's what I mean. Yeah. Right. Did he go into that's the right. pond? They they subsequently got a boat and uh, measured the diameter, I think, 10 and 11 feet diameter, three three uh, close together uh, depressed circles. But um, the only person to see a, cre- a craft or whatever was the guy's wife the night before. Right. Uh, when, when this thing apparently was leaving. And her, her, her drawing of what it looked like was a classic disc Would with it- a dome on it. How long, if there had been an intense magnetic field, say that just, you know, spitballing, that um, uh, this thing was able to generate a magnetic envelope around itself, that it could manipulate that envelope, that helped it, that was its navigation device. If, um, how long would a residual magnetic field last if it were that powerful enough to levitate a craft? Well, if the, if the craft were there and it were generating the field, uh, I, don't, I don't really I don't really know how much power whatever it would take to, for something to generate the field. Uh, it, I'm thinking it, more like uh, the, the, what I was saying was if you if you take a nail and put a take a, a strong magnet and whack the nail with one pole of the strong magnet, you're likely to magnetize the nail. Now. Uh, it won't be as magnetized as strongly as the magnet you used to hit it with. But will it stay? Once, once you get the nail magnetized, you can drop it on the floor, you can hit it with a hammer, you're not going to demagnetize it. But does it fade that magnet? <coughs> does the nail eventually become unmagnetized over time? Over a 
very long period of time, depending on how strong the, may, the magnetic field was, and depending, depending on the exact composition of the nail. Okay. <coughs> as as we're, we are running out of time here, guys, and I keep forgetting to mention um, that I wanted to thank Deborah, Deborah Jane, um, because she's she sort of helped set tonight's show up, and I keep forgetting. I, I wrote it down, and it's and I need to get anyways. I need to get back on this. I've been. Well, you just didn't, Nancy. You just think there. Yeah. Okay. And, and so, but I wonder if we could get to the, the what was in the briefing that you gave to President Clinton, Bill Clinton's science advisor, who then Hillary Clinton would have read, and then she was kind of pushing this in the Rockefeller Initiative. Yeah, what uh, kind of stuff? What What the, was the in book, there? The, the book. And I'm going to have a. I'm thinking of putting a second, a second, uh, putting out a second edition that has more on the Rockefeller Initiative. <coughs> but in 1993, or 19, 1992, Clinton was elected, and his his administration started in January of 1993. Now, Lawrence Rockefeller and Scott Jones and some other people had planned to try to take whoever was going to be the next president try to get him to disclose information on UFOs. So uh, Scott Jones was a friend of Gibbons, I believe, and uh, had known him before, so he figured he could arrange a meeting with uh, Lawrence Rockefeller, could certainly arrange a meeting, because Rockefeller presumably had given millions of bucks to the Clinton campaign. Anyway, Lawrence Rockefeller uh, was into paranormal stuff. He supported... Um, Scott Jones and uh, the Human Potential Foundation and uh, various types of uh, paranormal investigations. Right. So being into UFOs was not uh, out of character for Lawrence Rockefeller. Well, uh, because he'd also uh, sponsored the Pocantico Hills. Um, he'd sponsored the Pocantico Hills conference uh, supposedly to refute the Condon report. Right, that, was, that right. came after this. Yeah. So in March, late March of 1993, um, Scott Jones approaches uh, uh, Gibbons with a request for uh, some time to talk about advanced technology. And uh, Gibbons uh, contacted uh, Ron Pandolfi, uh, somebody who Gibbons had known previously for, for whatever reason uh, and uh, asked, I guess asked what was going on and uh, I don't know if Ron knew at that point at all or not but anyway I was uh, t Ron told me um, that uh, Lawrence Rockefeller was going to ask for time to talk about UFOs to the president and that uh, he had to get through that was okay Lawrence Rockefeller could talk to the president but he had to get past Gibbons first. Mm. And Gibbons' complaint was that Rockefeller couldn't just say, well, we're going to talk about advanced technology. Uh, you have to be more specific. And so uh, Rockefeller admits that, well, we're going to talk about UFOs. And Ron, the way Ron phrased it to me was that uh, Gibbons was petrified <laughs> <laughs> at the thought of having to talk to the president about UFOs. So he wanted me to, he, Ron said, they, uh, give us hope to get rid of the uh, problem somehow. Well, I was, about two weeks later, I got another call from Ron. This time, he says, 
I was at home at the time uh, doing some stuff uh, on a Wednesday, I think it was. Anyway, um, I got a call from Ron, and he says, we want you to write a paper, a briefing paper on UFOs for uh, John Gibbons, the president of science advisor, in which I said, what? You must be kidding. Mm. And uh, But immediately my brain went into high gear, how do you do, how are you going to do something like that? Uh, all that stuff, that, you know, preparation for slides. And, uh, right, right, and this is before talk, the... Talk and script and all that sort of stuff, and I think, well, it'll be a, a week, two weeks at least. And then Ron says, it's got to be done tomorrow. Oh. <laughs> oh and I figure, well, how the world can I do it tomorrow? I'm here, and where I, where I am is at least, I assume that it was going to be a personal briefing, so I'd have to drive to where Gibbons was going to be, and I'd be at least, I'd have to start early in the morning to drive to Washington, D.C. from where I was at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, then he says, it's got to be in uh, Gibbons' office by 8 o'clock in the morning. Now, this is like 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Tuesday or Wednesday, whatever it was, and I have to have it done in less than 24 hours. But, of course, uh, I wasn't going to drop the ball, shall we say, because it's not every day you get an opportunity to write a UFO briefing for the president's science advisor. My biggest problem was how to do it. And I know uh, the, the format for things like that are uh, a page, a page and a half, maybe two pages max, of an executive summary followed by tab references. That is small, right. a, a whole series of appendices, you might say. Uh, tab A, tab B, tab C, and these things are uh, explain what statements that are made in the executive summary. So if you read the executive summary, you get the whole idea of what's going on. But if you want proof of what they're saying in the executive summary, you have to go back and read all the tabs. So I, re- I had to sit there and envision what the... Typically, you would write both at the same time. You write the executive sum- summary up to some point and then stick in a tab for... Uh, further information, and then write some more on the executive summary, then stick in another tab, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to write the whole executive summary at first, hoping that I could come up with the tabs that would agree, mm-hmm. and I sent it on a, a, a fax of the executive summary at 8 o'clock the next morning. Well, uh, wow. Later that day or the next day, I was told that the meeting had been held at 7.30. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Typical, typical government situation. You mean 7.30? Uh, in the morning, yeah. Yeah. In other words, uh, I, I thought they were going to be having a meeting after 8 o'clock. That's what made sense to me, and that's what I, Ron thought. But the, what, we, what he didn't know was they had changed the meeting to make it earlier at 7.30, so by the time I got my executive summary got there, uh, the meeting was all over. I was told later on that Gibbs did, uh, Gibbons did read it. Well, now this is this is April of '93, and uh, September of '93, um, Rockefeller, Lawrence Rockefeller, had a, a meeting at his uh, JY Ranch in Wyoming, uh, Jackson's Hole, and uh, I was there and a bunch of other people discussing UFO stuff uh, to more or less, I guess, give Rockefeller a better idea of what, what information is available over the next couple of years, Rockefeller, uh, Rockefeller's uh, um, lawyer in particular, exchanged letters with uh, various people in the Clinton administration uh, about having this briefing. 
and uh, and, and I've got it. I've got it. Nineteen ninety-five. Wait, wait, and, wait, guys. We ha we have to wrap up. We have a show coming on immediately after. Oh, okay, so but I'm trying to ask. Well, okay, oh, but I have to get this guys, one thing no, no, in. We are totally out of time. Okay, I'm not. I'm not kidding. So, so, uh, so for Bruce, another time, for yeah. another time, then mm. you're giving memos to um, the Clinton administration running up to 1997 which would have been the Phoenix Lights, which you investigated with Lynn Kitai, and the night that Clinton disappeared, reemerges, Five Symington does his news conference, Five Symington recants his news conference, then gets a pardon for Bill Clinton. But we have to go. And we have to go. And we have, we have Peter Lavenda on next week, guys, and one quick thing. Gibbons, Dr. Gibbons, was in Oak Ridge now. He, he's a nuclear physicist, this proves that UFOs are higher classified than nuclear because he didn't know about this stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. He died 10 years ago, I believe. Yeah. No, okay, so, we, okay, have to, so we have to wrap up. You're right. It no, is, he died. You're right. It is midnight. Okay, thank you, Bruce. So, thank you, Bruce, for joining us. Uh, we will talk during the week because I've got to talk to you about Tesla. We've we got to have a talk about Tesla now. <laughs> yes, we do, and we will, and we will. So thank you. You'll Very be back much on for being really here. soon, and we will, we will pick this up exactly where we left off and then move into Tesla. Okay, so um, good night, everybody. Stay with us uh, for next week when Peter Lavender will be on. And we are your co-hosts, Bill, that's me, and Nancy Burns, broadcasting on uh, Future Theater from the banks of Primrose Creek in beautiful downtown Salisbury Village, Pennsylvania, on PSN Radio and the Dark Matter Digital Network, wishing everybody a happy 60 seconds more of Labor Day, and we will see you all next week, right here.